Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast. I'm Jane Rogers, journalist, health coach, consultant to doctors, and recovering chocoholic. My passion is helping my friends and others squeeze every drop out of life, using the latest scientific breakthroughs to make 90 the new 40, extend our health spans by 10 to 20 years, and prevent the diseases of aging. I travel the world interviewing leading experts in health and longevity to learn how to live longer, better, Buckle up, it's never too late to ride the cutting edge to grow younger, sexier, healthier, and sharper together. My guest on this episode is Dr. Richard Restack. Dr. Restack is a neurologist and a neuropsychiatrist in private practice in Washington, D.C. He's also a professor of neurology at the George Washington Hospital University School of Medicine. He's written 20 books about memory. His most recent is The Complete Guide to Memory, The Science of Strengthening Your Mind. I was excited to talk to Dr. Restack today about overcoming the everyday problems of memory. Dr. Restek, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing really well. Thanks. So you write in your latest book, The Complete Guide to Memory, you say, um, where do I start here? You write, a poor memory doesn't necessarily imply dementia, but a well-functioning memory virtually eliminates a concurrent diagnosis of dementia. That is a strong statement. Tell me about that. Well, it's very, very strong. And, and uh, I thought about it before I put it in the book, went back over my own experience and interviewed some doctors and neurologists as well as myself. And uh, I think it holds up. I mean, in other words, some people that are born with forgetful, they're the forgetful professor. They make fun of them when they're in grade school. So they have a memory problem all their life. It's mm -hmm. part of their personality. Other people uh, have good memories. So what we're doing here in this statement is you're saying that somebody can have a poor memory and be perfectly normal. But when you go to the other end and you say, well, I, I want you to test so-and-so for dementia, Alzheimer's specifically, it's, it's impossible for them really to turn up a, a normal memory, normal on testing and normal on interview, and yet to have a established generative dementive disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you are celebrating a major birthday this year. Major birthday. You're going to turn 80. Right. And you're a memory expert. And I bet you are doing some things that our viewers, our listeners, really want to know about. So tell me about your days. What are you doing to make sure that you keep that vibrant memory? Well, I practice every day with some of the methods that are in the book and that we can discuss during our conversation, and then I continue to maintain an active practice, and then I'm writing books, and then I give talks now and again, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I read an awful lot. I read about two or three books a week, so I'm constantly reading both fiction and nonfiction, and I've made some observations about the difference between fiction and nonfiction when it comes to memory. Namely, I think that fiction is a more challenging thing to, to do in terms of maintaining memory. You can take a nonfiction book, like my book, and you can uh, open it up if you like. In fact, that's the way I wrote it. To any page that may be interesting to you. You might like one of the chapter titles. You can start reading it, and you'll, you'll do pretty well with it. But it's the rare novel that you could open up in the middle and start reading and not having read what came previously. So that um, the novel, you have to maintain characters. You've got to maintain... Uh, 
your judgment and the author's judgment about the character, what they've done, how they fit into the particular plot. And that's difficult. That's a very demanding thing. So I always noticed that the two things that often turn up when people are starting to have dementia or mild cognitive impairment is that they switch their reading to almost all nonfiction. Very few continue fiction, unless it's very simple. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, very simplified in fiction, but uh, it's not a demanding, not so plot-driven a thing. They'll give up in terms of reading fiction. So I've noticed that. That's true. So if you're doing memory exercises every day, you must believe in your core that having a good memory and really really practicing it, strengthening your memory, consciously doing that. We'll talk about the ways you use think it's best to do that. But you think that will serve as a prophylactic to help prevent the cognitive decline of dementia. Well, as Samuel Johnson said, the art of memory is the art of attention. So really all memory methods are having to do with putting your attention on something. Uh, for instance, my wife mm -hmm. dog is called a skipper key. And dog lovers that may be listening in will recognize that as a Belgian barge dog. They're lovely dogs, but a very strange name, Skipper Key. So after a couple of experiences of someone stopping me on the street when I'm walking her dog and saying, what kind of a dog is that? And I can't come up with the answer. I thought, well, let's create it into an image. So I have an image in my mind of a uh, small rowboat, but a huge captain in all in his finery and livery and all that, holding a key. So it comes right away, skipper key. My wife thinks of it as uh, you know, skipping along, a girl skipping rope because she goes along holding a key. So it's two different things. And the image, there's no such thing as a proprietary image. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their own image of it based on their experiences. But by forming that image, I now will never have any problem remembering the name of that dog. So what you're saying is it's important for all of us to be very observant so that we can take in what we are seeing. Because when we see something, we'll remember it much more readily than just when we read about something, right? When we have this visual image. That's correct. We, we have to learn to read and write, but we don't have to learn mm -hmm. how to uh, vision things so that the God-given sensory power, if you will, is image. The rest of the stuff is kind of artificial, writing and reading. So what you're trying to do, essentially, the number one rule... Well, the number one rule is attention, as we just said a moment ago. The number two rule is to convert language. Do that any way that mm -hmm. you can do it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple of methods as we go on, but uh, I've already given you the one thing with that dog. Um, create the either through the looks of it, sound of it. Sometimes you use the sound, but the sight is the best because we're primarily visual creatures. So seeing something and converting a word or a sentence into a picture, into a mental drawing, is the key to setting up memory. Mm -hmm. But what if you're like my husband, who just has a horrible visual memory? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that we can work to improve our visual memories? Well, you can. I mean, there are people that have visual memories and people who have auditory memories. Uh, it comes out in school. Some people learn a lot more listening to the professor talk, whereas other ones can't wait to get out so they can go back and read the notes and, uh, and all that. 
because they, they do better with reading something and with visual memory. So these there are these distinctions. Yeah, you can, of course, build up. There's an old uh, method that a, a Chinese woman wrote a whole book about in uh, the 1920s, and it has to do with looking at, teaching a child to look at an object and then close their eyes and try to see it as clearly as they can. And then not to put it into words, but to see it very clearly. Mm-hmm. And then when they think they've seen it, so they've almost copied it, open their eyes and see what it is they missed. So as a result, you enhance the memory, gets stronger and stronger. So that's the thing your husband should be doing. Okay. I'll get on him about that. I'm sure he will appreciate it. He wants to improve. So one of the things I read in your book was that you should cook and you should try to, you know, work off a recipe sometimes or try to memorize that recipe. Is that a good way to strengthen your memory on a daily basis? Well, it's interesting you should bring that up. I said just a minute ago that one of the things I noticed when people uh, begin to lose their memory powers, that they begin to shift from fiction to nonfiction, remember? The other thing I've noticed mm-hmm. is that people stop cooking because they can no longer bring everything together. You know, the cooking is the magic of getting it all together so that it all comes. You're not looking for a piece of... Uh, of the recipe that you haven't put aside, and you have to set everything up like a sous chef and then do it. Uh, people with memory problems uh, tend to have a problem with that. They, they, they suddenly, the food isn't right. It's not cooked, and they're coordinating the different dishes, the main dish with the side dishes. They have to be at the same time. You don't bring out the nice prime rib, and then the potatoes are still cold enough to be warmed up. You have to get it all linked together. So that's a memory exercise which I highly recommend. There's a lot to be said for cooking. I mean, it's cognitive. A lot of things are memorization, uh, remembrance, organization, observation, taste, of course. Uh, So all these things come together. How about speaking of cooking, you got to go to the grocery store first. And I was kind of blown away. I always, I have a list. I go to the grocery store. I keep my list all week and go. You're saying, "Mm -mm, take that list, memorize everything on the list, Leave the list in your car and go into the grocery store just from memory and get what you need. Is that a good strength training for your memory? Well, that's good training if you have a uh, what I call a memory path that you follow. And the, the key is to come up with 10 images that you see every day and best of all that you see sequentially and have them so embedded in your brain. You then can put on those images or associate those images with something that you're going to be buying. So, for instance, my images of my house, I'm going to give you 10 of them, my house, nearby, nearby library, coffee shop, liquor store, Georgetown University Medical School, where I went, and then a restaurant, which I go to called Cafe Milano, and then Key Bridge, and then uh, the Iwo Jima Memorial, you can see where I'm going if you know Washington, then you go out to Reagan Airport. So I have each of those embedded in my mind. So if I want to go to the store, I memorize them and put various things in on them. For instance, if I'm going to get a quart of milk, my house now is in the shape of a milk, and there's milk coming out the top of the ship chimney, okay? Bread is the next thing, well, then I go to the library, and instead of books, there's loaves of bread, okay? 
Next place is the uh, coffee shop. And if I'm looking for coffee, then obviously that's the thing to do right, right away. Just have a giant cup of coffee outside of there. And the liquor store, you can have people sitting around outside drinking liquor, or laughing and carousing and all that, and then you can put one of the objects there. So if you were also be going to go there for orange juice, you could have orange juice that you're all using as a mixer. So then you walk through there, all 10 of them. So then when you get to the grocery store, you have your list, not, not in the car, because that's too inconvenient, in, in your pocketbook. And then you go and you get all these things that you memorized. And then as you go to the checkout, just before you go get in line, you look at what you have in your cart, and then it should be the same. And it will be soon. So that's a good example right there. Oh, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. Excellent idea. Speaking of the liquor store, how about alcohol in memory? Well, it used to be thought that a little bit of alcohol was good for people and it helped their cognition in general. And uh, therefore, they would say, well, you don't have to be a teetotaler, but just occasional alcohol. Well, now we're looking at this stuff a little more critically. And uh, a lot of times, among the people who are listed as teetotalers and don't drink are people who formerly used to drink. So I guess they drank enough that doctors or relatives said, you know, I think maybe you better just cut it out. So they're not really abstemious. They're just former heavy drinkers. They're now starting to have results from the drinking history that they had, okay? So they're obviously not going to do as well as you would expect. They, but most of all, they're going to be noted illnesses that they get from the previous alcohol intake that they had before. Is, is that clear? Or? Yeah, very, very clear. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a history of using alcohol to some level of excess, you can expect possibly to see some memory issues down the road, even if you um, are on the wagon. Correct. That's a good, good way to put it. Right. Exactly. And therefore, if they put you in a control group because they say you don't drink, uh, well, it's going to, you're going to have problems because you drank before. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about technology. Sure. Because I find that my attention span is not what it used to be. And sometimes I worry it's because technology continues to interrupt all the time. You get text, you're on, you're doing email, you use your phone for things that maybe you should be using your mind for, like doing addition on the calculator. Well, maybe I should do mental math. Tell me about technology and what you feel is a safe level for us to be using if we're concerned about memory. Well, technology can be used in a very positive way and very helpful way. For instance, if you're trying to think of a specific fact about an historical figure, nice if you could remember it, make a guess what the answer is, but then you can get on your iPhone and look it up on Google and what it was and find it out. So that's a positive part of technology. You're using it as something that supports your memory. It's not replacing your memory. You don't need to say, oh, well, I'll just look this up. Try to remember it first. See if you can come up with it. Write, write the answer down and see if you're right. It's also interesting to, to measure the degree of certitude that people have about their memory. It's not just a matter of do you remember, but how certain are you that you're correct? And there's often a uh, discrepancy between those two things. If I say to you, what's your name? And you say, I'm Jane. And I say to you, well, what percentage would you put 
of your certainty, you'd say, well, I'm 100% certain. That's my name. Okay, so suppose they asked you about something else that was not so well-known that you weren't quite as sure of. You might say, well, I'm you know, 20% correct. So the memory is not an all or none thing. It's more like a colored picture. It begins to lose certain colors. It gets desaturated and denatured a little bit. It doesn't just fall off the radar, usually. For instance, sudden losses of memory for things that uh, you think you would remember are worrisome. Now, you, we have what I call the small effect, where someone reads an ad in the paper, and one of the stores has a special on an object they'd like to buy, a piece of jewelry, for instance. So they get in the car and run there and park and run into the jewelry store, and guess what? They're lucky. They've, they've got the last one. So they buy it, and they're really happy, and then they leave the jewelry store, and they can't remember where they parked. Now, is that a memory problem? Is that somebody that should go to a doctor or something like that? No. Because when you went there, you were all, so what you were thinking of was this piece of jewelry. And when you got there, and that's all you looked for was a general parking place. You didn't care. As long as it was so close to the jewelry store that you could get up in there. And then when you got what you wanted and talked to the salespeople and spent some more time, well, you know, you come out and don't remember where you parked. It's not a big deal. But suppose you came out and said, hmm, did I drive here? Did somebody let me off? Did I take the bus or an Uber? Now, that would be a worry, because that would imply that so many different things have been forgotten. The conversations that you had with the driver, the observations that you made as you looked out the window, all these things are just wiped off the board. Because you can't remember how you got to the, to the mall. So that's the difference between a normal and an abnormal memory. And I set that out earlier in the book. I give about 12 examples of things that may or may not imply the memory that you should worry about. And that's one of the things I, I give is the mall experience. A good example. Very good example. I can relate. Yeah, yeah. We could all relate to that, I think. Mm -hmm. And also going into another room get something and forgetting what it is. That's so common that uh, it's not at all a sign of uh, serious memory impairment. What it is, you were well, from the time you left the first room, you got to the second, you filled in the travel time with some thinking of something else. And then when you got to the second place, you thought, oh my God, what, what the hell am I coming in here for? I don't remember what it was. Oh, I love you because that happens to me. It scares me, honestly. It happens all the time. It's not at all abnormal. Thank you. Good. And usually you can go to the first room and, and standing there and sort of looking around and say, oh, yeah, of course I was going into the comb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can go back and get the comb. Um, speaking of transportation, getting to the mall. So in the book, you recommend that once in a while we don't use our GPS on our phones to get us where we need to go to navigate for us, that we do it ourselves with our own visual memory, with looking at buildings, that that's a real good exercise. The GPS is, is helpful, but, I mean, it's good to be able to drive places to place without uh, using it because it keeps up your knowledge of the local geography. And if you use it and become totally dependent upon it, you've really lost uh, your, your sense of where you are in sense of accepting time it will take to get there by GPS. I think that it's something that is useful and, and helps the memory because you can learn new ways. If you want to get to a certain place, you're not sure how to get there, and you turn the GPS on, well, you've learned how to get there. 
So you use technology to strengthen the brain, not to weaken it. And then once you've learned how to compare, you don't need ideas. Creative thinking is to be able to use the images in your head. And of course, the more you can remember, the more images you have, and the more variegated they are in different parts across the different disciplines, the better you are at being able to use them in a creative way. So it would be hard to think of somebody who is highly creative who has a memory problem, a serious memory problem. In fact, in people with advanced degrees of dementia, not only can they not remember, but if you say to them, well, just tell me what you think tomorrow is going to be like. Just tell me the things you will probably be doing tomorrow. Now, that probably be a problem for you and me because we, our days are probably quite different. But if you're in one of these facilities, uh, you, it's a pretty good guess that you could answer that question by just simply reciting what you did today. Can't do that. Can not only enter the present, but locked out of the creative aspects of the future. And of course, the past. And if you don't have memory, then don't you lose your sense of self? Because we're only a compilation of our memories. That's correct. That's uh, very true. And um, that's what makes it so valuable, because as it goes away, we become a shell of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me think if there's anything else. Oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, how about sleep? Well, sleep will enhance memory because uh, napping helps you to be able to put things together uh, because you wake up refreshed, you see new connections, uh, sort of a adrenaline rush if you do it right. Um, so napping is very good. It's been shown that uh, it does help memory. People uh, remember things better. It links into dreams. Professor DeMent at Stanford showed that uh, if you gave puzzles to students and told them to think about the puzzles during the last 15 or 20 minutes that they were awake, that they often the solution would be suggested in the dream. Not given to them, mm -hmm. but suggested. Mm -hmm. So that it had to sometimes had to be reinterpreted. So which was very interesting. So the person was both aware of it and not aware of it. They'd come in and they'd say, well, I had a dream of such and such. And this is other students and the professor would laugh. And they'd say, well, yeah, so what does that mean? What was the answer to the puzzle? And they said, well, that's the dream. I'm trying to get it, but, you know, there's a little, little bit more needed. But they're on the way. They're closer than ones who, who didn't. Speaking of dreaming, I've been told that if you don't have a robust dream life, or, or if you can't remember your dreams, that's a, that's possibly a little red flag that you've got something going on with the brain that is not healthy. The other thing about dreams, you, you can force yourself to remember dreams. And it's very simple. That's all you have to do is express to yourself that the desire to remember dreams. And over the space of about two weeks, you begin to have and remember the dreams. Most of the dreams occur prior to wakening. Let's say you wake up at 7 o'clock or 
if you really want to start dreaming, you get yourself up at 6 and then go back to sleep. And you'll almost certainly have dreams. In fact, people who study dreams, they do that because they know that's the time when the most number of dreams occur. Isn't that interesting? Good idea. Very good idea. It is interesting. I can do that. How about how about diet? What are you eating these days? Are you eating a lot of blueberries and, and brightly colored foods for their antioxidant quality? Or what are you eating? Well, I think that's a good idea. There's been a study that came out just this week showing that uh, fast food is not good for cognition. So that uh, you're, you're better off eating vegetables and uh, and things like that. The Mediterranean diet is, is a very good diet. If you want to have the, the wine with it, that's fine. It's not something I would rule out for somebody. But you don't have to. It's it's very good diet. And how about exercise? Well, of course, the exercise is very linked with one's age. You know, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, exercise is, you know, we're all exercising. When I was in medical school in the 1960s, I mean, we had one student who had gone to Boston University on the track team. And every morning he used to get up and he would uh, run around upper northwest around the medical school. And we would all laugh at him. And we'd say, what is this all about? I mean, he must be, why is he doing this? So this exercise is not something that comes naturally to people of every age. However, I'd say anybody that's less than 50 years of age, they're into exercise and they're... Uh, it should be. It's helpful. Every study is showing that it's helpful. So Good. Good. And playing games. You like to play games, and you like to play the game 20 questions. Yeah, that's one that enables you to exercise your working memory, because you have to remember each of the questions and each of the answers. So that if your first question is, is it mineral, uh, vegetable, or animal, and they say mineral, well, you're not going to ask later on, is it a fish? I mean, you know, you've got to remember all this and keep it in mind. And then you could use that to be 20 questions. You can make it for fewer questions. And it can be played between two people. But you need to keep it in mind. Mm -hmm. One other thing we need to touch on before mm -hmm. we end this, and that's depression and memory. Well, if you're depressed, you tend to have depressive, depressing thoughts mm -hmm. because it just so happens that the brain tries to go back and find an explanation for everything. We're an exp explanation-seeking uh, creature. So if we feel depressed, then we try to look back and say, I'm depressed because my marriage fell apart, or this happened, or what happened. Well, it may be, but it may not be. You're just looking for a reason, and your thoughts are depressed, and your memory is, is affected negatively. So people sometimes are sent to doctors like me, and the, the complaints are, I can't remember anything. Well, they're really depressed, and they're so depressed they really can't activate themselves to remember. But when their depression is treated, then the memory comes back. Okay, so I think, I think we've covered everything. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? What, what have we missed, Dr. Restack? What, else, what other advice do you have to share with this audience? I think those are the main things, changing uh, language into pictures and uh, setting up a memory path that you can walk. I think that's that's the big thing. And if you can do that, you'll remember things a lot better than the great majority of people that you run into. Excellent. Dr. Restack, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful day. 
Same to you, Jane, and thank you for asking me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast, created and hosted by Jane Rogers. The website is cuttingedgehealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot, and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.